Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church of Wausau. My name is Carl Drake, and I'm a member of this congregation. I want to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us here and online this morning. Since 1870, UU Wausau has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. We are currently worshiping both in person and online, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter, follow us on Facebook and Instagram for updates. I have a couple of announcements. Unfortunately, Reverend Brian Mason is not able to be here today as a member of his family has contracted COVID, so he's gonna stay home for a couple days. Um, a little update on our pledge campaign. Oh, excuse me. In, in, in lieu of Brian being here, Richard Olson has graciously agreed to fill in. As regards our pledge campaign, we're doing pretty well. We are waiting on the receipt of 23 more pledges, and if those are at or above where they were a year ago, we will be within 7% of our goal. So we're very optimistic. One other thing, we are still looking for volunteers to tutor the Afghani refugees as they start coming to Wausau. Several more of our church have graciously volunteered to step in as tutors. And, and we're also looking for more. So if you're interested, talk with me afterwards uh, or talk to Ro Roxanne Borneman. She can tell you about that as well. So with that, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please, please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting. You will find the words printed in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth and the warmth of love and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Richard has a few words. I always do. Well, yes, you know by now I'm not Brian Mason. I did try on his robe thinking I could pass for him, but I tell you that thing weighs about 20 pounds. Uh, the service I'm doing this morning, according to my records, I haven't done it here before. But if it turns out that I have, just don't tell me. I found this interesting poem by American poet Wallace Stevens. I thought it was perfect for a frigid January day. One must have a mind of winter to regard the frost and the boughs of the pine trees crusted with snow and have been cold a long time to behold the junipers shagged with ice, the spruces through the distant glitter <clears throat> of the January sun, and not to think of the misery in the sound of the wind, in the sound of a few dried leaves, which is the sound of the land full of the same wind 
that is blowing in the same bare place for the listener who listens in the snow and nothing himself beholds, nothing that is not there and the nothing that is. Please stand as you are willing and able and join us in our first, our opening hymn, number 346, Come Sing a Song with Me. And I see we have some song leaders here today. Affirmation, love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve human need, to end that all souls shall grow 
in harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other. And now the doxology. From all that dwell below the skies, let songs of hope and faith arise, that peace, good will on earth be sung through every land by every tongue. I'm sure many of you saw earlier this week in the news that the wise Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh has passed away. He is often called Thai, which is Vietnamese for teacher. So in honor of all the wisdom he shared with people of all ages, I want to share with you a practice that we use in RE from his book, A Handful of Quiet. This version was adapted by my colleague Katie Schmidt-Cartman. Thai and a group of children and families created this practice at a retreat he was leading as a tangible way for children and families to return to their breathing, to their bodies, and connect with the world around them. All we need is four pebbles and a quiet place. Each of our four pebbles represents a different part of nature. With our first pebble, when we look at each other, we can see a flower, fresh, beautiful, open to the moment. We are each born as a flower, and when we meditate, we can come to smile easily and feel fresh. Our second stone represents a mountain. There's a mountain inside each of us, and it keeps us solid and calm. Being solid makes it possible for us to be happy. People can rely on us, and when someone you love is solid, you can rely on them. Our third pebble represents calm water. As you've seen in the surface of the lake, when it's very still, you may notice it reflects the hills and the clouds and the trees around it perfectly. You can take a picture of the lake, and it's like you're taking a picture of the sky, the trees, and the hills. When you are calm, when you are still, you can see things as they truly are. When you're not calm, it's easy to get confused and angry because we see things differently. All of us make mistakes and create suffering when we're not calm. When we have tranquility, we can be truly happy. So with this third pebble, we cultivate stillness and calm. Our fourth pebble is for space and freedom. Space is freedom, and freedom is at the heart of true happiness. When we want to be free from fear, anger, despair, and worries. Breathing in can bring you space into yourself. Breathing out, you can share that space with your loved one. We all need space around us and inside us. We can sit and hold these pebbles in meditation as a way to find stillness and calm, imagining in our minds that we are a flower, mountain, water, and space. But we can also do our meditation with our whole bodies by shaping our bodies like that flower, mountain, water, and space. So before we begin our practice, I'm going to invite you to choose which way you'd like to participate. You can remain seated, closing your eyes if you wish, imagining you are pebbles, or you can stand now as we move through our practice, posing your body for each petal. And so we're going to begin. First, a flower. Breathing in, I see myself as a flower. Breathing out, I feel fresh. Flower, fresh. Let's breathe deeply and move with just those two words. Breathe in while you think flower. Breathe out while you think fresh flower. 
fresh flower fresh flower fresh each time we do this we heal the flower inside of us and we welcome fresh really try to see yourself as a flower we can be beautiful fresh pleasant and lovable human beings now a mountain breathing in i see myself as a mountain breathing out i feel solid mountain solid let's breathe deeply with just those two words breathe in while you think mountain breathe out while you think solid mountain solid mountain solid mountain solid each of us has a mountain within you are capable of being solid and stable now water breathing in i see myself as still water breathing out i reflect the things as they truly are water reflecting let's breathe deeply with just those two words breathe in when you while you think of water and breathe out while you think reflecting water reflecting water reflecting water reflecting still water is within you you are calm clear and serene and finally space breathe in i see myself as space breathe out i feel water let's space free let's breathe deeply with just those two words breathe in while you think space breathe out when you think free space free space free space free space is space is within you like the moon traveling through the beautiful night sky we can have space and freedom no matter where we are when we touch the space inside us we are free i invite you to take one last deep breath in and out and when you're ready we return to the here and now thank you for taking part in our practice this morning and please join us in blessing those of us here those of us joining from afar and for all the wisdom we teach each other by singing may peace surround you the words are printed in your bulletin
The mission and ministry of UU Wausau is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. Rather than pass a plate this time, we've placed an offering basket in the back of the sanctuary for you to drop a gift in. You can also stop by our website, uuwausau.org, to make a one-time or recurring gift with your credit or debit card. Please remain seated for the following hymn, number 159. And if you find it a little difficult to sing with a mask on, feel free to hum. Sunlight too 
it must have been quite the sight at the time and place. On the other hand, seeing women near a Civil War battle site was not exactly rare. Mostly they were on hand to boost morale, you might say, and they were, were referred to by words that were, shall we, shall we say, not quite appropriate for a church sanctuary, even a UU sanctuary. On the other hand, I have heard some choice words from this pulpit. But a woman charging into the battlefield with a wagon full of supplies and the gumption to treat the wounded was a rare sight. It was the Battle of Cedar Mountain in August of 1861 in Culpeper County, Virginia. Union Major General Nathan Banks was there, and so was Confederate Major General Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson. And so was Clara Barton. Clarissa Harlow Barton was born in Oxford, Massachusetts in 1821 on Christmas Day. Her mother was not fond of her daughter, so her siblings, all, took, all older, took care of her. Her father was a successful farmer, and Clara liked to listen to his war stories. Her first experience as a caregiver came when she helped care for her brother as he convalesced after a serious accident. As she was a shy young woman, her parents encouraged her to become a teacher, one of the few honorable professions for women during that time. Sorry. She began teaching at the age of 18, and at the age of 24, she founded a school for the children of mill workers, a mill her brother owned. She then moved to Bordertown, New Jersey, and started the first free school in 1851. After the school grew in popularity, it was decided that a woman could no longer manage it, so they hired a man and offered him twice the pay. Clara Barton resigned, as she would not work for less than a man. She then moved to Washington, D.C., where she worked for the U.S. Patent Office. Later that year, the 6th Massachusetts Militia arrived in D.C. Many of the soldiers were injured and all suffered for the lack of provisions. As they gathered in the unfinished U.S. Capitol building, Barton was on the scene, administering to their wounds and finding food and other supplies. She knew some of those soldiers as she had grown up with them or she had been the teacher of some of them. This was a seminal moment for a woman who, without any formal medical training, would be attending to wounded men, procuring and distributing supplies. A woman who would later establish the American Red Cross and become active in the International Red Cross. A woman who would later go down in history and would be listed in the pantheon of famous UUs. After, after the Battle of Bull Run in July of 1861, she placed an ad in a newspaper for supplies, and the response was extraordinary. She would later find herself at many other well-known battles that, of that Civil War, 
helping both Union and Confederate soldiers. Despite her efforts, supplies were often limited or non-existent. After the Battle of Antietam, she had to resort to using corn husks as bandages. It was after that same battle that, while helping an injured soldier take a drink of water, a bullet passed through her sleeve, killing the soldier. After that battle of uh, Cedar Mountain I mentioned moments ago, Barton wrote this, and I'm quoting her. Five days and nights with three hours sleep, a narrow escape from capture, and some days of getting the wounded into hospitals in Washington. And if you chance to feel that the positions I occupied were rough and unseemly for a woman, I can only reply that they were rough and unseemly for men. End of quote. As a result of her reputation, she was dubbed the Angel of the Battlefield and in 1864 was named head nurse of the army, once again with no formal medical training. After the war, she established the Missing Soldier Office and was tasked by President Lincoln to find missing soldiers. More than 22,000 men were located by her office. Her information gathering brought her to the infamous Andersonville prison, which Ray and I visited a couple of years ago. It is a haunting and powerful sight, but so are the stories that surround it. Because of her efforts, Barton was given the honor of raising the first U.S. flag at the Andersonville Memorial Cemetery in 1865. But Barton was not finished. She crisscrossed the country, giving lectures about her work experiences and, and gained some notoriety in doing so. During that time, she joined Susan B. Anthony and others as they fought for the right to vote, and she also became an activist for civil rights in general. By the end of, 19, of 1868, she was both, both physically and mentally exhausted. Following the advice from her doctor to distance herself from her work, she traveled to Europe. While visiting Geneva, she became familiar with the International Red Cross and soon became involved in establishing the American Red Cross. She returned to the United States and initiated a movement to convince the U.S. government to recognize the International Committee of the Red Cross. But President Hayes was convinced that America would never again experience the atrocities of our Civil War and did not support her efforts. Barton had better success when she convinced subsequent President Arthur that the American Red Cross could also be of service following natural disasters, since there were going to be no more wars. In 1881, Clara Barton was named president of the American Red Cross. While never officially joining a universalist congregation, 
Here is what she wrote to a longtime friend. My dear friend and sister, your belief that I am a universalist is as correct as your greater belief that you are one yourself, a belief in which all who are privileged to possess it rejoice. In my case, it was a great gift. Like St. Paul, I was born free and saved the pain of reaching it through years of struggle and doubt. My father was a leader in the building of the church in which Hosea Below preached his first dedication sermon. Your records will show that the old Huguenot town of Oxford, Massachusetts, erected one of, if not the first, universalist church in America. In this town I was born. In this church I was reared. In all of its reconstructions and remodelings, I have taken a part, and I look anxiously for a time in the near future when the busy world will let me once again become a living part of its people, praising God for the advance and the liberal faith of the religions of the world, so largely due in the teachings of this belief. Clara Barton died on April 12, 1912 at her home in Glen Echo, Maryland, at age 91. A monument in her honor stands at the Antietam National Battlefield. But Clara Barton was not the only woman of note attending to those wounded in those Civil War battlefields. So was another woman in her 60s, a woman who had already made a name for herself in the cause of mental health, and prison reform. Dorothea Dix was born in Hampton, Maine in 1802. At age 12, she left an unhappy family with an alcoholic father and a distant mother and went to live with a grandmother. As she was both bright and mature, at age 24, she opened a private school open to both boys and girls. She later started one of the first free night schools for poor children. With scant formal education, she was a voracious reader, attended many lectures, and associated with local intelligentsia. Born into a strict Methodist family, she later attended the Congregational Church and then found her place with the Unitarians. According to the Dictionary of Unitarian Universal's biography, she, quote, appreciated the Unitarian emphasis on the goodness of God, purity of heart, openness to new knowledge, and responsibility for the good of all society. Doesn't that make us sound good? She was a close friend of William Ellery Channing, the famous pastor of the, Fer the Federal Street Church in Boston. From time to time, she also served as a governess for the Channing children, and sometimes accompanied the family on vacations. Dix continued to engage in the Boston Unitarian community, eschewing esoteric concepts that is often the nature of theology. She believed that actions speak louder than words, especially when those actions seek to advance humanity. In 1836, and suffering from respiratory issues and exhaustion, she moved to England. 
but returned to the United States one year later after her grandmother's death. Dix found her seminal moment when she was asked to teach a class for female prisoners. She was so appalled by the poor conditions that she sought and won a court battle to make improvements. This would only be the beginning of a long career of prison reform efforts. She was especially concerned over the lack of attention to those who suffered from mental or emotional disorders. She was a vocal critic of simply incarcerating people without considering their ages, their crimes, and their mental or emotional states. Dix visited many institutions over those years, often alone, which was quite unusual for women during that time. Her determination and involvement in the political arena was also uncharacteristic of her times. But she was a woman with character who refused to be deterred by confining stereotypes. But in order to promote reform in the Massachusetts legislature in 1843, she had to rely on a man to present her case. After subsequent observations by others supported her findings, funds were ultimately allocated for the expansion of the state medical, a mental hospital. Her quest for reform led her to other states where she instigated improvements to existing facilities as well as construction of new ones. In the early 1850s, she lobbied long and hard for a land grant that would provide funding for, for facilities and programs for the insane as well as for vision and hearing impaired and the mute. It passed both houses and Senate but was slow to arrive on the desk of Millard Fillmore. Later, President Franklin Pierce vetoed the bill. Like Clara Barton, she also traveled to Europe to rest, but she couldn't give up on her cause and she traveled around Europe to promote reform. She even had an audience with the Pope, who took up her cause. She returned to the United States in 1856, but her reform efforts were interrupted by the Civil War. She volunteered and was made superintendent of army nurses. Her strong organizational skills served her well as she supervised first aid stations, hospitals, nurses, and the procurement and distribution of supplies. But as she was used to working mostly alone, she found the bureaucracy of the military alien to her ways. She gained a reputation as being officious with her staff. Among the doctors, she also ruffled, ruffled feathers as she criticized their excessive drinking and lack of attention to sanitation. Yet, to many wounded soldiers, she was known as the Angel of Mercy. After the war, she helped to find missing soldiers, wrote letters to families of missing soldiers, and helped soldiers receive their pensions. She then resumed her work for prison and social reform, but massive immigration, an increase in the insane poor, 
and the draining of budgets severely limited her prospects and success. Dix had always advocated for an approach that would provide more than just a safe and sanitary place for the mentally ill, but would also include activities, therapy, and purposeful work, but her cause was beyond her means. Dix finally retired in 79, at the age of 79. She withdrew from her reform efforts and refused to discuss her life work with anyone. She died six years later. She may have felt her efforts were to little avail, but she goes down in history and in our UU pantheon as a noble reformer who fought the odds with both wins and losses. Two women, many battles, one war. Both women had unhappy childhoods, which may have been common in those days and is maybe still too, too common today. They both were guided into roles that had been determined for them by society. They both defied those norms as they sought and fought for the advancement of humanity. Neither married, though Barton did have an affair with a married man during the Civil War. Though still somewhat fenced in by gender stereotypes, they both took great risks for the greater good. Neither re received formal medical training. They learned on the job. Both took charge as they were charged to do. Barton was more personable. Dix, less so. Dix mixed best with intellectuals and was less accepting of those who weren't. While versed in poetry, art, literature, and history, Dix was sullen at times and felt alienated from the world. Dix was bitter in her final years. Barton was not. Both pushed to the point of exhaustion, physically and mentally, not only, not only fighting the battle to improve humanity, but also fighting the battle to be allowed to fight the battle. So please join me now in our closing hymn. But obviously the title of the service is not what's in your order of service because that was Brian's service. So my, the title of this one was uh, Two Women, Many Battles, One War. So closing hymn number 1018, that must be in the teal hymnal then? Yeah, in the teal hymnal. 1018. Are we standing for this one? Please stand if you're willing and able.
to that land. Come and go with me to that land. Come and go with me to that land where I'm bound. There'll be freedom in that land. There'll be freedom in that land. There'll be freedom in that land where I'm bound. There'll be freedom in that land. There'll be freedom in that land. There'll be freedom in that land where I'm bound. There'll be justice in that land. There'll be justice in that land. There'll be justice in that land where I'm bound. There'll be justice in that land. There'll be justice in that land. There'll be justice in that land where I'm bound. There'll be singing in that land. There'll be singing in that land. There'll be singing in that land where I'm bound. There'll be singing in that land. There'll be singing in that land. There'll be singing in that land where I'm bound. Well, I didn't come prepared for a benediction, so. Let me just try to get this quote out as best I can. Um, I've been a big fan of Joan Didion for many, many years and have read many of her, her, her essays and novels or whatever. But, and you might know she died recently. But her most famous quote is, we tell ourselves stories. And that's how we live. Please remain seated for the postlet. Thank you.